Morning, church. I don't know if you guys heard about the uh, man and wife that passed away. At the same time, they were Christians and they went to heaven. So St. Peter's showing them around. He shows them this big house, this mansion. It's got like 50 rooms. I mean, it's huge. And the guy says, who's going to pay the light bill on this great big house? St. Peter says, oh, don't worry about it. It's all taken care of. Says, okay, so then he shows him this beautiful big lake. I mean, it's huge. It's got a big enough for a yacht. So there's a big yacht that's on the lake. 30 foot long or so. And he says, who's going to buy, he says to St. Peter, who's going to buy the fuel for that great big boat? St. Peter says, don't worry about it, it's taken care of. So then he shows him this beautiful golf course, 18 holes, beautiful green. The guy's shaking his head, he says, who's going to pay the green fees on this golf course? St. Peter says, it's all taken care of, don't worry about it. The guy takes off his hat, stomps on it, looks at his wife and says, we could have been here a long time ago if you hadn't fed us all those vitamins. (laughs) Hallelujah. That's the best I can do this morning. So So we're containing our series on Matthew. We're going to be through it in a few weeks here. And last week in chapter 26, we saw about the betrayal of Judas, his arrest. Um, Jesus faced the Sanhedrin. They had a trial at night. And by the way, that trial was illegal according to Jewish law. But they were trying to uh, avert a riot because all the people thought Jesus was a good speaker and a prophet and all that kind of thing. And so... Um, and then there's Peter's denial was in there last week. Um, so now it's chapter 27, um, verse 1, and it's uh, dawn, it's early morning. And so that's where we'll begin today. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for who you are. We give you all glory and praise and honor. Lord, if you've never done anything else for us, Lord, you're just worthy because of who you are. But you've done everything for us, basically emptied heaven. And so we're so grateful, Lord. And we thank you for your word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we invite you, the Holy Spirit of the living God, to come and minister the word to us some of these familiar things to remind us of the great sacrifice that Jesus made. And Lord, we just give you glory and praise and honor for that. We thank you, Lord God, for your love for us, even to the death, your death on the cross, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse one, it just says, when the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away to be, and delivered him to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now you have to understand that 
the Romans had taken away the Jews' ability for capital punishment. So they could no longer condemn Jesus to death on the cross. They couldn't do that. So they had to go through the Roman government. And then in verse 3, it talks about um, that Judas was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver, as you just heard Daryl read, to the chief priests, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. So Judas had some uh, remorse. He was regretted what he had done. Uh, but they couldn't use that money, put that money into the treasury because it was um, blood money. And I'll show you a scripture here in Deuteronomy 23, 18. <clears throat> 23, verse 18. It says, You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of of a dog. A dog is a male prostitute to the house of the Lord your God for any vow offering for both of these are in an abomination to the Lord your God. So what this is saying basically is that any money obtained by sinful means could not be put into the temple treasury. Okay? That's basically what it's saying. <clears throat> the 30 pieces of silver were blood money, as we said. Remember, Judas was the keeper. He loved money. He was the keeper of the purse for Jesus' ministry. And he was the one with the purse strings. And then this is probably something that you haven't noticed before. Exodus 31, 32 says this. Exodus 21, 32, I'm sorry. If the ox gorges a male or a female servant, that means slave, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. That's what a slave was worth those days. And that's how they valued their savior. Was those 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. So now Jesus faces Pilate and the Jewish leadership began their plot to have Jesus crucified. Verse um, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And that's the only thing he said about himself. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. So, <clears throat> you have to realize that the Sanhedrin's first charge against Jesus was blasphemy. Um, and that doesn't mean anything to Pilate. He wasn't interested in their laws and, and that kind of a thing. So they accused Jesus of sedition, which means claiming to be a king. And in verse 13, they testified many things against him. So with the things going around with fake news nowadays, that's not the first time there was fake news, amen? 
It was way back in Jesus' day. Verse 14, Jesus didn't defend himself. Not, not a word, the Bible says. Um, here's something that's often overlooked in the Bible. Um, Jesus was demonstrating tremendous restraint. And I'll show that to you here. Uh, go to Matthew 26, 53. Or Jesus said, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So Jesus could have just prayed to the Father. Um, he had 12 legions of angels. One legion is 6,000 angels or 6,000 soldiers, whatever the case may be. Twelve legions, if you do the math, is 72,000. And he said he could have more than that. So all he had to do was say a simple prayer, and 72,000 angels would be there to rescue him. I don't think the Romans would have had much of a chance, amen? But Jesus showed tremendous restraint. And he did that because the plan of redemption for mankind would not have been fulfilled otherwise. And scripture had to be fulfilled as well. And also for his great love for humanity. You know, we, we were created in his image for fellowship with him and to worship him. He wanted somebody close to his level that he could communicate with. You know, talking to animals just didn't get it. And so we are his family, and he loved his creation. He loved us with an uncompromising love. Praise God. So you can see the restraint of Jesus. I mean, they're doing all these things to him, um, and he's not defending himself. He's not answering back. You know, some of the politicians could take a lesson from that. He's just letting him go on. <laughs> the only thing he did, he's agreed with Pilate when he said he was, asked him if he was a king. So, <clears throat> you have to understand that Israel had covenanted with Yahweh on Mount Sinai. They covenanted with him to be his bride. A covenant was and is today a very strong thing. And all that is going to be overturned now in this trial before Pilate. They should have been crying out in support for their king, but instead they were crying out, let him be crucified, let him be crucified. See, it was all because they were envious of Jesus. You know, he did these miracles and his teaching was with power and everybody was following him and nobody was following the leadership. They were following the word of God. Jesus is the word. They are one. So the bride is now, uh, Peter Lightheart said this, quote, Pilate's court amounts to a divorce court, unquote. So they were divorcing this 
covenant that they made with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. So the bride is divorcing the bridegroom. And the crowd is all stirred up by the religious leaders. And we see that today in these riots in the cities and stuff. Just a few people, somebody with a megaphone, and they get the crowd all stirred up. And then the media joins in and helps them in these kinds of things. And it doesn't take but a few people to get everybody else stirred up. Um, just a few days ago, they were praising Jesus. Now they want to crucify him because of what the leadership has told the Jews. I mean, the, the Jewish people. <clears throat> so the, the, the atmosphere is very tense, very volatile. Um, it's, you know, just, you can feel it in the air. It's like uh, they're next to being a riot there. And Pilate is observing all of this. So now Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. We get down to verse 15. Now at the feast, that would be the feast of the Passover, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Yeah, they just envied him because all the people were following him. And Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. He was a Jewish freedom fighter. And if we go to, uh, to Mark chapter 15, verse 7, it says this, There was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. So Barabbas was a bad boy. He was a rebel, and he was among uh, murderers. He was called an insurrectionist, which is somebody who revolts uh, against established authority. So he was a pretty bad boy. <clears throat> but they wanted him released instead of Jesus. On the first feast of the Passover, um, God took the firstborn son of the Egyptians and he set Israel free. Here in Matthew, Jesus is now the son of Israel, and Barabbas represents the son of Egypt. <clears throat> and you can see in here um, that Pilate is trying to release him. Um, you know, he didn't, and he had the power to, but he didn't. But he did try. But he wasn't getting anywhere. So, <clears throat> verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So God gave his wife a dream, and she sends a servant out and tells Pilate about it. Just leave this guy alone. He's a just man. And Pilate didn't listen. So there's a lesson in here somewhere about listening to your wife, guys. 
The dream stressed the fact that Jesus was not regarded as a criminal by the Roman government, by the Roman authorities. They knew that the Jews were envious of him. And if we go and look in Matthew 1 and 2, we'll see that dreams were used as a vehicle of divine revelation. Hallelujah. So Matthew chapter 1, 20 and 21. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord, this is talking about Joseph, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So there's a dream of divine revelation to Joseph. And then in Matthew 2, uh, verse 12. This is talking about the wise men from the east that Herod had sent to find out where Jesus was. And then he said, tell me so I can go worship him. And this is what the Lord told him in a dream. Then being divinely warned in a dream, he's talking about the wise men, that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country in another way. So Herod just wanted to know he was going to kill everybody at that age. So um, dreams are used um, for divine revelation a lot and direction. And sometimes they have to be interpreted. My daughter-in-law has studied interpretation of dreams uh, for quite a while. And she's pretty good at it. Um, she's studied for like 10 years in this area, and other things, but um, she does interpret dreams. And it's amazing some of the things that God will say. So God's plan is for a sacrifice and atonement for the sins of the world, for the sins of the Jewish nation. And it was prevailing so far. Now in the Old Testament, atonement, uh, was done in a manner that we're pretty familiar with. Let's look at um, Leviticus 16. <clears throat> verses 6 to 10. Aaron shall offer the bowl as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So, <clears throat> in God's plan, Jesus is going to be the sin offering. And he has to be the sin offering because he's the only one, um, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And Jesus is the only one 
the only one walking the earth with holy, innocent blood. So no other sacrifice would be accepted. If you or I volunteered for this, it wouldn't work because our blood is tainted, is contaminated with sin. So Jesus was the only acceptable sacrifice to the Father. He was the only hope for mankind. And that's why he showed so much restraint because we were done otherwise. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So Barabbas then becomes the scapegoat. <clears throat> the scapegoat was supposed to be released into the wilderness, but instead Barabbas was released back into the Jewish community, back into Israel. So he brought all the sin and all the guilt right back to them. It wasn't out in the wilderness. You know, in the Old Testament, the priest would put his hands on a scapegoat's head, you know, and was supposed to carry the sins of Israel out into the wilderness and be gone forever, so to speak. They never were completely wiped out, but they were somewhere where they couldn't find them. But the innocent blood of Jesus washed all of my sin away. In 1975, I was born all over again. I was born in 1941, but I was reborn in 1975. And all the stuff that I did between 1941 and 1975 was erased. Thank God that the sins of our youth can be erased. Amen? What a precious Savior. So you can see this following the tradition of the Old Testament um, sacrifices and atone for atonement. The same kind of a thing is happening here. But the sins were brought right back into Israel by the scapegoat Barabbas. Barabbas, by the way, his name means son of the father. Isn't that interesting? Barabbas, son of the father. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a turmoil was rising, a riot almost, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. So, <laughs> Pilate washes his hands in front of everybody to justify the decision that he's going to make and turn Jesus over to him, even though he knows he's the just man. He just admitted it right here publicly. I have nothing to do with this just man. But yet he turned him over because he was afraid of a riot. And if a riot happens on his watch, that's a black mark against him as a governor. You know, everybody wants to be popular. And he wouldn't have been popular with his peers. <clears throat> 
So washing his hands didn't do anything. But he, it was symbolized of, have you ever tried to justify your sin by doing something? Or saying something nice to somebody that you sinned against or whatever? You know, sometimes we do the same kinds of things. Not necessarily washing our hands, but it's the same principle, trying to justify what we did. That dog won't hunt. Hallelujah. The people said, His blood be on us and our children. And over the decades, the many years since then, we've seen the consequences of that in Israel. Israel is, is still God's chosen people. His favorite. He's the one that they, he chose. And now we've been grafted in by the grace of God. Think about that. A Gentile like me grafted into God's chosen people to be a joint heir with Jesus. Wow. I can see that golf course already. Uh, I don't think it's going to be like that, but it's going to be good. So at this point, Pilate can see that he's not getting anywhere trying to release Jesus. And they continue to try to release him. He's just going to provoke the Jewish leadership more. And it's right at the edge of a riot now. And so he's worried about that. He's worried about his reputation. Yeah. So I want you to notice something here that you might not have seen before. Um, Pilate is called governor eight times in Matthew's account, eight different times. But there's another governor present, and it tells us about that in Matthew 2, 6. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. It's talking about Jesus and ruler is translated in the King James governor and in the original Greek it's translated governor. It's the very same word used for Pilate when they call him governor. There's another governor there. But this governor is the ranking governor because he's the king of kings and the... And what? Lord of Lords. Amen. He's the ranking governor in this whole thing. And he had the power to change it all. Over 72,000 angels. All he had to do was say a prayer. Father, send them. (laughs) And he restrained himself for you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. Even me. Think about that. Whoa. So you didn't know the me that died, and I did. <laughs> uh, hallelujah. So the ranking governor is Jesus. Although nobody knew that. You missed a good place to shout right there. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Okay, verse 26. 
Um, says this. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Hmm. So Pilate released Barabbas, the scapegoat, which brought the sins and everything right back into Israel, their guilt. And he had Jesus scourged. Now the Roman scourge was 40 lashes. But the Jews requested that only 39 be given to make sure the law wasn't broken. You know, they kept all these laws to the T, to the but they didn't recognize their Savior. They were jealous of him, envious of him. And uh, so he was flogged and whipped and lashed to fulfill Scripture. Um, I can show you that in Isaiah 50, verse 6. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheek to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And then a famous scripture in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has bore our griefs. Yeah, we read that kind of fast sometimes. But griefs means anxieties, calamity, disease, sickness. He bore all that stuff. Hallelujah. Carried our sorrows. That's anguish, affliction, pain. He carried that. <clears throat> Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, wounded means something, it means profaned. It's showing disrespect, contempt, irreverence, debased, defamed, these kinds of things, according to Webster. For something holy. And then the last one, he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. When it says he was bruised, it means to crumble. It literally means to be beat to pieces. Beat to pieces. I don't know about you guys, When I was younger, I was a rebel. And I was in, not, I'm not a big guy, but I was in several fights with people. This is before Christ, before I knew the Lord. Mostly when I was in the military. And I won some and I lost some. <laughs> Winning is better. But nobody really wins a fight. Amen? i tell you how smart I am. One time I picked a fight with a guy that weighed 300 pounds. And at the time I weighed about 165. Pretty smart, huh? 
my jaw still clicks when I chew something hard. So they beat Jesus up, the Bible says in another place, I didn't put the scripture in there, that he was beat beyond recognition. Think about that. And he just, he could have all said that prayer, 72,000 angels or more would have been right there, right there, that fast. But he didn't do that because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Even me. Praise God. So he restrained himself. Just tremendous restraint. I mean, I can see myself handling it for a little while, but it gets old pretty fast when they're plucking your beard and jamming stuff in your head and beating you up. You know, he was tied to a post and lashed 39 times. What we overlook sometimes is that wasn't a whip with a single piece. You heard about the cat with nine tails, the cat of nine tails. And some say it had more than that, but nobody really knows unless you're that old. And I'm probably older than most of you, but I'm not that old. And so let's just say there was nine, I think they called them thongs that went out, leather things. And they would tie pieces of jagged bone in there and other sharp objects. So when this guy, even in the movies anyway, they always picture the big muscled up guy who was doing the lashing. So when they would lash you with that, they were, they were lighted on the end. So they would dig into your flesh. And when he pulled it back, it would rip fragments of flesh out of the back and around the side. And if you ever heard what that sounds like, it sounds like tearing paper. I was in the army with a guy, it's a long story, I'm not going to tell it, but I heard that. It's, like, it's just like tearing paper. And you can imagine, well, it's hard for me to even imagine that kind of pain. But I think, personally, the pain of taking the sins of the world upon himself was even more painful than the physical pain. We'll get to that in the next few weeks, but that's what I think. I mean, he was innocent and holy. Humble himself, became a man, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life. Now he's dying for us. Never sinned. Never sinned. Never had a sinful thought. And now he's taken all the sins of the world, of all humanity, upon himself. Because he knew he was the only acceptable sacrifice. Without Jesus, we were done. We'd all be barbecue. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. So I can say to you unequivocally, that the price for your healing, the price for your healing has been paid in full. Paid in full. It's paid in full. Hallelujah. So why aren't 
why isn't everybody healed? If it's all paid for. Well, it's just like your insurance when you go to the doctor. If you got good insurance, it'll pretty much take care of the visit. However, in most cases, there's a copay. Okay? So you can't receive the benefits from the insurance company until you pay the copay up front. Now, some plans don't have that, but a lot of them do. So, similar with God, because He's provided healing through Jesus, through these stripes that He's taking. I never finished that. 39 stripes times 9 is 351 wounds. 351. Slap the back. <laughs> 351. If there was more tails than that, then it was more. That's not the point. The point is, whatever it was, he took them for you and for me. And the price has been paid. But just like the copay to get the benefits of the insurance, with Jesus, you have to believe in your heart that he did this, that it's paid in full. You can't believe it with your head. You can, but it won't do you any good. And that's where most Christians are today. They believe in their head that Jesus died for their sins. And, and most believe in healing. But will he do it today? You know, that kind of a thing. Will he do it for me? It's a provision. But to get the provision, it's similar to a copay. You have to believe it in your heart. That's your part. You have to believe it in your heart. And getting it from your head to your heart takes a little effort on our part. And that's where Christians fall down <clears throat> a lot of times because we want everything handed to us. We don't want to do any effort on our own. You have to meditate on the Word. If you need healing, you need to meditate on the Word. And get it in your heart. When he looks in your heart and sees the title deed, it tells in Hebrews, if you study out that, if he sees the title deed, what's the title deed? The title deed is proof of ownership. If you have the title deed to your proper, property, Tom, you own it, amen? And so when he looks in there and he sees the title deed that you're believing in in your heart, and you can be healed. It's just that simple. But we don't get it in our hearts. We keep it in our heads. And we talk the talk and all of that. But it has to be in our heart. And that takes a little bit of effort. So I just encourage you, if you're someone who needs healing, to meditate on healing scriptures. And then just talk to God about it. So we're just about done. Oh, yeah. God's plan of redemption is unfolding. Um, as Jesus restrained himself, 
He allowed himself to be wounded, called all kinds of things, um, tied to a post, scourged with this scourging that I was just talking about, 351 wounds at the very least. And the father allowed all this to happen. He allowed all this to happen because he loves you, because Jesus was our only hope. So he paid for our salvation when he died on the cross and rose again. And here today he paid for our healing with these stripes that he took and all these wounds. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.